Hello, and welcome to Grand Final History for a supplementary episode where we look at the second 10 years of the VFL. These supplementary reviews of the decade provide a chance to look at the trends and events over time. It's a quick way of gaining an overview of the previous 10 years, maybe saving you from having to listen to all those episodes. But it's also an opportunity to see how the VFL developed in its second decade, how it managed the many challenges it faced, and maybe pick up on some points that may not have been noticed before. I'll try and break the decade into some different categories, rather than just giving a season-by-season summary. And, as we look back at the last 10 years, there are a number of recurring issues, including professionalism, expansion and contraction of the number of clubs, gambling and the scandals resulting from gambling, violence on and off the field by both players and spectators, club turmoil as committees, coaches and players come and go, not always smoothly. We will even look at how emerging science and technology made its impact on the game. During this decade, the league both grew and shrunk. The first two expansion clubs, Richmond and University, joined the league in 1908. University were competitive in their first few years and were close to making the finals, but once professionalism was established in 1911, the writing was on the wall for the profoundly amateur club. Richmond had the dubious honour in 1912 of being the last team to lose to university and the students lost every game in 1913 and 1914. They withdrew before the 1915 season, the enlistment of a significant number of their players for the war being the final straw. Many of their remaining players went on to play with Melbourne. While there were suggestions that North Melbourne might be approached to replace University, the league played the 1915 season with nine teams and then, in 1916, five clubs stood down, stating that it was not proper to play football while there was a war on. This left a four-team competition, Carlton, Collingwood, Fitzroy and Richmond, to play an unusual season. Each club played the other four times before a final series between the same four clubs. Fitzroy came last, winning the wooden spoon, but then played their best football during the finals to win the Premiership, a unique double that will never happen again. One of the biggest challenges facing the league in the early years of the second decade was how to deal with player payments, professionalism versus the ideal of amateurism. The league was an officially an amateur competition at the start of the decade. Payments to players was against the rules. In effect, there was a salary cap of $0 or £0. But many clubs breached the salary cap, Carlton being one of the most obvious candidates. In what might be considered irony or cynicism, many of the club delegates that made up the administration of the league professed support for maintaining amateurism, while at the same time paying their own players unofficially, under the table as it was known. There were proposals to allow player payments in 1907, 08, 09 and 1910. A stumbling block was the requirement for a 75% majority for any changes to the rules. University and Melbourne were staunch advocates of amateurism. At one meeting on the issue, the university delegate said married men with children to support should stay at home and do the gardening, leaving the game to younger men. They even suggested that many of the spectators would be better off spending time at home. The professors had a different view to most clubs. 
1911, there were rumours that some VFL clubs were talking to some VFA clubs to set up a new breakaway competition that would allow clubs to pay players openly. That scenario was averted when, early in the season, Fitzroy and St Kilda joined the majority, leaving Melbourne and University on their own, and the 75% majority required for the change was finally adopted. Most journalists reporting on the issue considered the decision a good thing in that it eliminated the hypocrisy of the league rules being openly flouted by the club delegates that were supposed to enforce them. But there were also warnings of players selling themselves to the highest bidder and clubs not managing their finances despite large gate takings. Measures were taken to reduce the ability of players to move clubs chasing higher payments. There would be no appeal if a transfer was refused by a club. This meant that a player had to stand down from football for multiple years or stay with their original club if the transfer was refused. Another plan was the introduction of a district scheme, or zoning. This would tie residents of a suburb to a specific club. While district schemes were proposed and discussed on multiple occasions, it was not until the 1916 season that such a scheme was implemented. While looking at money, we should also focus on the other issue that the league had to deal with, one that became explosive in the 1910 season, gambling and accusations of players being paid to play poorly were a constant during this period. In 1908, there was an investigation into accusations that a St Kilda committeeman had boasted that he had players doing his bidding, and that he had made money when St Kilda unexpectedly lost to Newcomers University. Despite claim and counterclaim and investigations by St Kilda and then the league, nothing was ever proven and it was all dismissed as a non-issue. Worse was to come, though. Before the 1910 second semi-final against South Melbourne, Carlton shocked the football world by standing down four players due to accusations of bribery. The final series took a back seat as accusations and investigations continued for two weeks. As well as the Carlton players accused of accepting money from bookies, there were reports that players from Fitzroy and Melbourne had also been approached with payments to pay poorly in their games against South Melbourne. You might notice a common theme. A common club in all three matches. A team from South Melbourne, perhaps. The end result of the affair was two players from Carlton, Alex Lang and Doug Fraser, being suspended for five years. The other two players stood down for the semi-final, were cleared. It appears they really were innocent, just caught up in the difficult times. The president of South Melbourne, a larger-than-life character, entrepreneur, publican and caterer, Henry Skinner, made it clear that anyone who published accusations about him would be pursued in the courts, and no action was ever taken against South Melbourne. Another challenge for the league was violence on and off the field by players and spectators. There were ground invasions by spectators, players charged by police and convicted in the courts for on-field actions, and in 1910, umpire Lardy Tolak, former premiership captain for Collingwood, was kicked by a South Melbourne player at league headquarters where he had been appearing to give evidence after reporting a South Melbourne player 
on the previous Saturday. It was alleged that South Melbourne's Albert Franks was unhappy with Tullock and lashed out at him while the committee was making their decision. Franks was suspended until the end of the 1911 season, 33 matches in all. 1910 also saw a near riot at the grand final where a fight between Collingwood and Carlton players started in the fourth quarter. About 30 spectators jumped the fence and a full-blown riot with 42,500 people at the MCG was an imminent possibility. In a moment of inspiration, umpire Jack Elder bounced the ball and players quickly realised there was a game to be won and started going for the ball rather than each other. The ground was cleared and a potential tragedy averted. 1915 saw another ground invasion at the MCG in a game between Melbourne and South Melbourne. Spectators were upset when a Melbourne player lashed out and knocked South's George Payne out cold. An estimated 2,000 people swarmed onto the ground. One group of children grabbed the match ball and played kick to kick as players ran for the change rooms. A small number of police and soldiers tried to restore order. It wasn't until George Payne recovered and the umpire got the ball back to him so he could take his free kick that things cleared up. The crowd quickly got off the ground when they realised that South were a chance to win the game. 1912 also saw the introduction of a new official, a steward who could enter the ground and, while not able to act as an umpire, they could report players. The logic being that the stewards would have more time to see untoward actions while the umpire focused on the game. In 1914, Alan Belcher, captain of Essendon, was reported by a steward for striking. But the case was dismissed at the tribunal, where they decided that they did not have the authority for incidents where a player punched a spectator that had run onto the ground and hit the Essendon captain first. A constant theme through any era of football is a sense of dissatisfaction with whoever is in charge of your club. There is often some group or faction who think they could do a better job than the current administration or coach. Usually it comes to a head when the club is going through bad times, but not always. Carlton were the power club of the second decade, but they managed to add their own turmoil, which could be seen as a precedent for all clubs in the future. John Worrell had been the first coach appointed to a VFL club, and he was also Carlton's secretary and delegate to the league. Normally, any coach who had won three premierships in a row would think their position was safe. But by the middle of 1909, there was a cohort of players who had had enough of the stern disciplinarian. A number of players had stood out at the start of the season, unhappy with the coach and, or perhaps, unhappy about their pay. Albeit, of course, they were amateurs then and no one was being paid anything. But the Blues lost the opening game to university. It was troubled times at Carlton, and mid-season, after a one-point loss to the Magpies, the players met and declared they no longer wanted Jack Worrell as coach. Despite the committee supporting Worrell, he resigned as coach for the good of the club, although he stayed on as secretary. The skipper, Fred Elliott, took over the coaching role, and the Blues went on to win 13 of their next 14 games. However, they eventually lost the grand final to South Melbourne, but the troubles were not over. A faction, including a number of players, decided the committee had to be refreshed and Jack Worrell had to go as secretary. After a bitter campaign, Worrell was outed. A cohort of five players, loyal to Worrell, representing 17 premierships between them, 
also left Carlton. But the Blues were not the only club that could dismiss a successful coach. Charlie Ricketts captain coached South Melbourne to their 1909 Premiership before standing down due to ill health. He returned and captain coached again in 1912, taking the Southerners to runners-up, losing by less than two goals to Essendon. But the South Melbourne committee decided that he was not the man for the job in 1913. He left the club and spent the rest of his career at Richmond. There is a long history of discarding successful coaches in the VFL-AFL. St Kilda did have some success in this period, but they also had their share of drama. We mentioned the allegations of bribery and gambling earlier, but there was also an infamous player strike in 1911. Relations between the committee and the players were not good, and things came to a head when the number of dressing room passes issued to players was restricted. These passes allowed friends or family into the change rooms. Whether the committee was seeking to reduce the crowds in the rooms or to help get the players focused, it was the final straw. Most of the players stood down and the Saints Selection Committee drew on juniors and local clubs to get a side onto the ground. A series of one-sided losses ensued and the Saints ended that season having set another record using 62 players in the one season, a record that will stand forever given that clubs are now limited to 44 players. 1913 saw an attempted strike before a game by some Melbourne players who were unhappy that their club committee were not supporting teammate Jack Bristow after he had been charged by police for striking Carlton's Gordon Chalice the week before. Chairman Bill McClellan came down to the change rooms and threatened that they would never play football again. The players backed down and the game went ahead. Many efforts have been made to expand Australian football to an international audience, albeit with limited success even now. The tradition dates back to the second decade of the league. In 1907, Henry Harrison, one of the founders of the Australian game, was speaking at a dinner and quoted the London Daily Mail writing on the Australian game. The Mail said, If Australia wishes to do some real good for English sport, she should rather send two teams of men who play the Australian game, which, in the opinion of many English and American players, as well as by the far greater majority of Australians, is the fastest, prettiest, most scientific and least brutal of all varieties of football. It would be no exaggeration to say that after such a visit, there would be more teams playing the Australian game in a very short time than those playing the rugby code at present. 1909 actually saw a troop of 40 American schoolboys visit Australia to play Australian football. They had been introduced to the code by some expatriates and a trip had been organised to send the lads halfway around the world, playing baseball, Australian rules, performing in concerts and acting as their own marching band. They are surely the first American team to play a game of Australian rules on the MCG. The tour did lead to a pair of articles published in the New York Times and Washington Post in 1910, written by the leader of the tour, Major Sidney Payotto, saying Australian football was the best football code in the world. Publicity that the AFL would love to see repeated in today's modern era. Perhaps the most unexpected site for international activity was Japan, 
but there were reports of the game taking root with some schools in Tokyo in 1910. It appears an employee at the British Embassy had been promoting the game. If that activity had been nurtured, perhaps we could be playing international games against the Japanese today. 1914 saw talk of a big scheme to take two teams on a world tour of the US and Europe to showcase Australian football, but the First World War stopped those plans. There was, finally, an international exhibition game held in London in 1916, but it was brought about by the First World War, rather than any efforts by the league. The game was played in London as a morale-boosting effort for Australian soldiers, with many soldiers coming from top clubs in Victoria, South Australia, Western Australia and so forth. The match was a success at attracting a crowd, raising funds for the Red Cross and improving morale for players and spectators. But sadly, a number of the participants would be killed and wounded before the war was over. So despite all these efforts, the game is still a domestic affair, but I'm sure we'll hear more efforts for international promotion in future seasons. To help promote the game locally and in the northern states, a series of carnivals were held every three years. The first carnival was in Melbourne in 1908 to celebrate 50 years of Australian football. There were teams from every state and even New Zealand. The New Zealand team performed a haka and then the Queensland side were reported to have had their own Aboriginal war cry. All games were held on the MCG and Victoria were the champion side. A follow-up carnival was held in South Australia in 1911 without New Zealand or Queensland and this time it was the South Australians who won the championship and the final carnival for the decade was held in Sydney in 1914 with the intent of promoting the game in that city. But with the carnival held in the weeks immediately before the start of the First World War it is understandable that the public's attention was focused elsewhere. Victoria woe the Premier State on this occasion. Media in this era, before radio and television, was basically print. If you were not at the game, the only way you could find out what had happened was to talk to someone who had seen the match or read about it in the papers. Although there were people letting homing pigeons loose after each quarter at some of the finals, I'm pretty sure that this was organised by SP bookies and not an early form of broadcasting. Two innovations occurred in the second decade. 1912 was the first year of the football record. It had exclusive rights to publish the players' numbers, which was also a 1912 innovation. The record provided insights and observations about the game, teams for each round, even carried details about VFA games. The other innovation was the capture of a VFL grand final on film for the first time. The 1909 grand final between South Melbourne and Carlton can be seen at the National Film and Sound Archives YouTube channel, a 10-minute silent movie, the earliest example of Australian football on film, that shows both the changes in the game since those early days, slight passes are a thing of the past, but also the common elements of speed, movement and the excitement of a win that continue to today. Advances in science and technology also made their impact on this decade. Collingwood adopted the latest medical technology when they tried to gain an edge on South Melbourne in their 1909 second semi-final. At half-time, the Magpies had their players doping on oxygen. 
using an oxygen cylinder to give the players a blast of oxygen through a mask. It may have been the latest innovation, but it did not do the Magpies any good. It was Collingwood that looked tired as the game went on, and South won the final easily. It would not be the last time that clubs try to use medical technology to gain an advantage. South Melbourne were a successful team in terms of games won and playing finals football, but they only managed one premiership in this era. An article in the Herald in 1913 looked at their results in terms of sports psychology, identifying mental strain as their problem when it came to big games. Clubs are still trying to work on the best mental approach more than 100 years after these early insights. Perhaps the last word on how science was impacting the game should be left to Bill Strickfuss of South Melbourne. 1910 was an exciting year from an astronomical point of view because Halley's Comet was making one of its regular approaches to Earth and could be easily seen in the night skies. Bill Strickfuss was a big, tough and sometimes rough ruckman for South Melbourne. When appearing before the tribunal and being asked about being struck by an opponent, he said he did not know what had happened. As far as he knew, it could have been the comet hitting the earth, which is possibly the only time Halley's Comet has been used as an excuse at a VFL or AFL tribunal. Despite being over 100 years ago, there are some players and coaches from this era with reputations and fame that continue to modern times. Roy Kazali, made famous for the phrase and then the song Up There Kazali, made his debut at St Kilda in 1911 during the infamous player strike. He played in the Saints grand final loss in 1913 and would eventually move to South Melbourne in 1921 where the Up There Kazali call became famous. Jock McHale started playing for Collingwood back in 1903 but his coaching career began in this decade in 1912 and would continue for an incredible 37 years and 714 games. Today's Premiership coach is awarded the Jock McHale Medal in recognition of his seven premierships. We'll explore those in future episodes. Dick Lee was a Collingwood champion forward of this era. Although he debuted in 1906, we'll count him for this decade. His name may not be as familiar with modern spectators, but as well as being the leading goal kicker on seven occasions, he was the first footballer to have a cartilage removed from his knee, setting the scene for countless footballers to have countless knee operations over the years. It is also argued that he was the inspiration for the phrase Dicky Knee, which is also worth noting so long as we don't forget what a true football talent he was, representing Victoria 19 times and playing in three Collingwood premierships. Some big names left the scene in this decade too. Henry Skinner was the famous South Melbourne president from 1904 to 1911 and a key contributor to league delegates meetings. In many ways he was a prototype for future club presidents. A larger than life character, founder of a brewery, a pub owner, the Golden Gate is still in Clarendon Street, South Melbourne, an entrepreneur known by some as boss for his patronage of local sports clubs and a focus of energy to improve the South Melbourne Football Club. Forever associated with the 1910 season of scandal bribery affair, but no wrongdoing was ever proven. It was a shock when he died suddenly with heart troubles before the 1912 season. Many future larger-than-life club presidents could claim Henry Skinner as their role model. The other departure of note was the death of the VFL's first president, 
Alex McCracken, who resigned due to ill health in 1915 and died later that year. He had steered the VFL from its foundation to a position of strength as the leading football competition in the country over almost 20 years. An administrator's administrator, he had founded and run many sports clubs, organisations and businesses, including helping to found the Essendon Football Club when he was just 17. A man that I think is worthy of recognition as one of the leading administrators of the VFL-AFL. We've looked at some of the trends and events of the decade. Let's finish up by looking at the finals over this 10 years. Before we get to the clubs, we should recognise umpire Jack Elder, who umpired the grand finals in 1908, 09, 10, 11, 12 and 13. He will be back for more grand finals in the coming decade, so we'll hear more about the man who, in 1996, was named the VFL-AFL's umpire of the century. But six grand finals in one decade is a mighty effort. Every club, bar university, made the finals at least once. Richmond making their first final series in 1916, in that odd season with just four teams. Collingwood and South Melbourne played in nearly every final series, but the Magpies could only win one premiership from three grand finals. Similarly, South could only win one premiership from four grand finals. As noted earlier, some sports psychology might have helped them cope better with those big occasions. Essendon had been promising, making a grand final in 1908, but it was not until the arrival of supercoach Jack Worrell, who had spent a year as coach of the umpires after being sacked by Carlton, before taking Essendon to back-to-back premierships. This meant Jack Worrell had five career premierships. Even St Kilda had some successful years among their more familiar cellar-dwelling periods. They made the grand final in 1913 and defeated Fitzroy in the first final. But the Maroons had the right of challenge and defeated the Saints in the grand final game, despite St Kilda having a barnstorming last quarter that almost got them over the line. It's going to be a long wait before the Saints get their second chance. And Fitzroy would go on to win another premiership against the odds in 1916, where they finished last out of four teams before coming good in the finals to have the most unique double of a wooden spoon and a premiership in the one season. But the dominant club across the decade was Carlton. It is hard to argue with nine finals appearances, seven grand finals and four premierships in ten years. So when you join a debate about which team has had the most success over a sustained period of time, don't forget the Blues in the early years of the VFL. And of the four premierships, perhaps the standout was in 1914, where they won the grand final with nine first-year players. Next time your club talks of going through a rebuild, take some comfort that maybe they'll be able to repeat the effort of the Blues in 1914. That brings this supplementary episode to a close. It was a decade that started with an officially amateur competition of eight clubs and ended in the midst of war with only four teams playing. Huge crowds had become the norm before the start of the war, but clubs were still grappling with the financial challenges of paying players and keeping costs in control while still trying to get the best players for that elusive premiership. Technology was beginning to have an impact on daily life with the emergence of telephones, movies, motor cars and more. The biggest challenge, though, the league had to deal with was how to continue a competition 
during a time of war. Join me next time as we return to normal programming and look at season 1917, the first year of the League's third decade and the fourth year of World War I. If you've enjoyed Grand Final History, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts from. The more goals we kick, the easier it is for others to find the podcast. If you have questions or want to leave feedback, please email me at info at grandfinalhistory.com.au or check out the grandfinalhistory.com.au website or Facebook and Twitter for more Grand Final History. Music